His wounds have paid by ransom. You know, the music today reflects a very contemplative, uh, reflective kind of thought that looks back to what Christ has accomplished on the cross of Calvary and helps us to understand the implications of all of that, but most importantly reminds us that it was our sins that placed Him there. It's a serious contemplation, consideration for God's people that often is overlooked by some of the realities of life, and we, we look beyond that, that glorious salvation in Christ alone. And, and getting ahead of ourselves, we fail to understand our position prior to that salvation. And that's what Paul is really trying to get across in our study in Galatians, that, that, that grace of God, that, that faith that comes from God in Christ alone that redeems us from all iniquities. Uh, he paid the penalty for all of that, and there are implications to that and how the believer lives their life. Each Communion Sunday, we have taken the time to reflect on John chapter 15, or at least that whole section of the Upper Room Discourse. If you open your Bibles to John chapter 15, it speaks to the preparation that Christ is giving to His disciples, looking forward to that time that He paid the penalty for their sin, and we are looking back to that time that He paid the penalty for sin. They are living by faith on that promise that would unfold in the coming days. We are looking back on that, but the implications of the sacrifice of Christ, the implications of our sin, the implications of grace alone, by faith alone, and Christ alone are very real implications to how we live our life. But it all starts at the foot of the cross. It all starts with understanding our sinfulness. It all starts with with understanding His righteousness and the payment of His penalty for all of our sins, that, that there's a somber reflection for the disciples in the quietness of this upper room and the intimacy of that room. There was a somberness because of the words of Christ, not yet knowing all of its implications, looking back there still needs to be that sense of, of, of reverence and, and worship and respect and contemplation of the reality that Christ did that for us. When we were helpless, when we had no path, when we were dead and our trespasses and sin, through His sacrifice, He made us alive unto God, and it is all through Jesus Christ. It's a glorious salvation. And it's wise to take the time and quietness to consider all of those things. And in fact, this very table of remembrance is to remind us of those things. And John now is reminding these disciples in his recollection of the words that Jesus had spoken to them, the words that he had instructed them on prior to this crucifixion, the words that were given prior to all that would take place in the days that, that lie ahead. And it all starts in chapter 13, the passage of Scripture that they come away, come apart. They're in this upper room reclining together in a very, very intimate kind of setting, and Jesus washes the disciples' feet. And He makes a very clear statement that not everyone in that room is clean. You know the confusion as we went through this text about that cleanliness, but that cleanliness is, is through salvation in Christ alone, directly tied to His death, burial, 
and resurrection. As we reflected upon that, He called them to live differently. He gave them a new command or commandment, and, and that's in chapter 13, to love God with all their heart and mind and soul and, and every aspect, every faculty of their being. Then, of course, he, he extends that to love one another as He has loved us, and He picks up on that theme in chapter 15. But none of us do that perfectly. And chapter 13 reminds us that Peter would deny Christ on three separate occasions leading up to that ultimate crucifixion. It would almost destroy him in a sense of, of, of agonizing pain for the denial of this Savior. And, and the, the Bible speaks of that time in, in Peter's life where as this all came to his realization in the midst of it, he had forgotten the words of Christ, but when it, when it really all fell upon him, it says that he went out and wept bitterly. It was a guttural mourning of his denial of, of a Savior that was particularly grounded in the fact that he said, the rest of these guys you can't count on, I'll die for, for you. And as we look at the implications of what Christ did for us, that they're spelled out in clear ways. In, in this upper room discourse, Jesus, in preparing them, says, don't be stirred or agitated. Believe in God and believe also in me. And he identifies himself as the way and the truth and the life. He makes it clear to all of the world, not just to his disciples, that there's no other way to the Father than through Jesus Christ and His atoning work that caused some confusion. He addresses that confusion and then He promises them the Holy Spirit. He promises them that, that even in His absence, God in the presence of the Spirit might be with them, that He would teach them all things, that He would remind them of all of the words that Jesus Christ had, had shared with them. He would dwell in them and be, be, be in them, that He wasn't going to leave them all by themselves to figure this out. And yet He says again in chapter 14, but I'm not speaking of everyone, for Judas in the room. Judas was outside of him. Judas was not a part of that vine. Chapter 15, verse 1, Jesus says, I'm the true vine. My Father is the vine dresser. Every branch in me that does not bear fruit, He takes away. And every branch that does bear fruit, He prunes that it might bear more fruit. He is expounding in a word picture with this, this parable of the vine, if you would, the very things that He had spoken in chapter 14, I am the way, the truth, and the life. This is the only way to the Father. You are a part of that vine, and, and I am that true vine, or you are not. He speaks about those who are not who would be pruned away. He also speaks about those who are part of that vine who would go through situations and circumstances in their life that would amount to this picture of pruning to make the vine and its branches more productive so that in this pruning process, there would be more production of fruit. Study this last month. Already, he says, you are clean because of the word that I have spoken to you, but again, not all of them were clean. Abide in me, and I in you. And as the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide 
in me. Perhaps one of the most important things that he was conveying to them on that night. He knew how this might rock their world. He, he understood the implications of this group of men who had faithfully followed him, save Judas, but were ill-prepared for what was going to soon happen, that death by crucifixion and that burial that would disperse them into hiding. He says very clearly that unless you abide, unless you are a part of me, unless you are part of the true vine, as, as the Father, the vine dresser, grafts you into that vine, unless you are a part of me, you can't do anything. I marvel at the grace of God first in salvation, but I've learned to marvel at the grace of God in sanctification. I marvel at His pruning capacity as we walk through the valleys of the shadow of death, as we deal with the sinful realities of life. He shapes us, and He molds us, and He reminds us that, that without, without Him, none of this makes any sense. Without Him, you'll never see your way through this. Without Him, you'll never be able to comprehend all those things that take place under the sun in a sinful world, you must indeed abide, remain in Christ. I am the vine, you are the branches. And whoever abides in me and I in him, he is he that bears much fruit. For apart from me, you can do nothing. And every time I convince myself I've learned that lesson, I go off again on my own, try and make this a reality. And I don't think I'm alone, am I, this morning? Without me, it is by my grace, it is through my Son, it is abiding in Christ that you are capable of, of navigating this world with a sense of purpose and a sense of meaning and a sense of hope. And without me, none of that is yours. None, none of that will sustain you. None of that will keep you. But the promise is, as we are a part of that vine, we, we bear fruit, and then through the circumstances of life, we grow in the grace and the knowledge, and we bear more fruit, and more fruit, and more fruit, and that's critically important. The words that Jesus is communicating here, He knew their tendencies. He saw their tendencies. He would now send them out into this world to the glorious resurrection, and they were empowered by the Spirit of God to face the challenges and difficulties and persecutions and ultimately martyrdom. And he said, you can't do this unless you abide in me. You have to understand this is by grace. You have to understand that you, you must stay connected and intimate with the vine. As you look at that passage of Scripture, such great truth in there that escapes us at times, and that's why it's important we come to the table of consideration, even reflect on this passage of Scripture. And in a very sobering way, he, he changes a little bit his emphasis, and he says, if anyone does not abide in me, isn't a part of me, isn't a part of this vine, he's thrown away like a branch and withers the branches are gathered and thrown into the fire and burned. He's making the distinction there that there are only two kinds of people in the world, those who are abiders in the vine and those who aren't. There are two destinies to those two kinds of people, and it builds and expounds in a word picture on what he says in 
chapter 14, verse 6, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes unto the Father except through me. He is painting this this beautiful, realistic word picture for these disciples in preparation for what he knows is coming to pass. It's a sobering reality, perhaps reflective of Judas. If you abide in me and my words abide in you, ask whatever you wish and it will be done for you. That's a great promise that is absolutely abused in our culture today. (laughs) Because God loves me, because Jesus saved me, because I've made a profession of faith, I can ask for anything. But you got to understand the context here. It is not anything your heart desires. It is based on the change of heart and your heart desiring the things of God, and your heart only desires the things of God when you abide in Christ the vine. Now, he's going to unpack that a little bit. But it's critically important that that we don't take this as some name and claim it promise where because we are children of the King, we get whatever we want. What What a terrible theology that is. God is a sovereign God even over your salvation. He chose you before the foundation of the world, and by grace you've been saved through faith alone in Christ alone. And through that grace alone, we, we sang about it this morning. But we have to go back to verses 4 and 5, critically important, to really understand some of the implications of, of, of verse 7. There's no such thing as a fruitless Christian. There's this notion today that you can accept the atoning work and sacrifice of Christ and get all of the benefits of salvation, but you bear no responsibility whatsoever for anything after that. You can kind of go and live your life any way you wish to in an antinomian kind of… There are no rules anymore, but that's a false notion. In fact, we're going to read in, in a passage of Scripture in a moment that, that Jesus in another place makes it, makes it very clear that by our fruit, you can tell whether or not we are part of the vine. And you would think that the implications in the text, and they're clear, the more you are a part of that vine, the more you are pruned, the more fruit you produce, the more security you experience, the more hope that you have as you grow in the grace and the knowledge of of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, and that has real-time implications. So he says, apart from me, you can do nothing, so you must abide in me. And if you abide in me and, really important, verse 7, My words abide in you. He speaks of those words. He said, I'm going to give you the Holy Spirit, and He is going to remind you of everything that I told you when I was with you. Those words matter. It is a call to, we'll find out in the text, a call to obedience. And when we abide in Christ and are producing much fruit, and and when it words abide in us and we're being obedient to the truth of the Word of God, then we can ask whatever we wish, but what we wish will be in compliance with that Word of God and with that vine. We will be doing 
our Savior's will. We will be doing the Father's will. Therefore, our prayers will be according to that will. And if our prayers are according to the will of God, He says, I will answer every one of those prayers. See how that goes? To pluck this verse out of context in some Joel Osteen kind of way robs God of His glory. It robs God of His grace, makes a mockery of the sacrifice that that we have this God who is out there just doling out gifts and giving you anything that you want, and that is not according to the Scripture. He tells these disciples in the next chapter, in this world, you're going to run into some trouble. But if you abide in me, and if my words abide in you, and if you stay faithful, if you ask according to my will, it shall be done for you. You shall be secure in that. You shall be blessed in that. So, in spite of this tribulation and trouble that comes in the world, you will know, and you will be of good cheer because you know He's overcome the world. How did He do that? The cross. This is real-life implications, real-life instructions to these men who had spent a considerable time with Him, who were prone to misunderstand some of His words. Do you you notice that He says 13, 14, and 15, and then into 16, and then He prays again uh, for all of those things in 17? He he keeps repeating Himself and, and painting pictures so that these guys really understand what He's saying. That's important. It's critically important. So, as we look at this passage of Scripture, we're reminded of the words of Christ and other places. Every healthy tree bears good fruit, but the diseased tree bears bad fruit. A healthy tree cannot bear bad fruit, nor can a diseased tree bear good fruit. Every tree that does not produce or bear good fruit is cut down and thrown into the fire, some of the very language used in this text, verse 6 in particular. Thus, you will recognize them by their fruits. Those who are abiding in the vine, those who are part of the true vine, those who are living under obedience to the words of Christ, those who have a sense of peace and understanding and assurance. It is those people who have different kinds of lives than the rest of the people, and because of those different kinds of lives, they can look at you and your hope and your belief and your attention to your Savior and know and recognize that you have been with Jesus. There's an interesting passage in the gospel where by their dialect they were called out for, these are the guys who are running around with Jesus. We can tell by their speech. Jesus is saying, no, they're going to tell by how you live your life. They're going to tell by how you live your life. And that will do one of two things. It will verify your belief or cause it into question. It will glorify your Father in heaven or it will grieve the Holy Spirit. There are some caveats to that, but he's making it very clear to them that how you live your life and the fruit that is produced in your life as you abide in the vine, asking for those things necessary to continue to abide in that vine according to His will, God will do that for you. There's much confusion over fruit, and that fruit sometimes is reduced to mere behaviors. Listen carefully. That was the what would Jesus do movement. 
Jesus did not come to be a good example for you as to how you live your life. Jesus didn't come to teach you what would Jesus do. He came to bear the penalty for your sin on the cross of Calvary. And outside of that, you can't do anything. But because of that, you can do everything. When you're up against it and you're not sure, if you pray to the Father, abide in the vine, and are obedient to the words of Christ, He will answer your prayer and give you everything you need and sustain you in the most difficult and darkest. What a glorious text this is, saying, hey, I love you guys. In fact, that's what he says in the very next verse. Remember, the fruit of the Spirit is an inner disposition. It's not a bunch of works. Remember, in Galatians, they wanted to turn back to works. This is an inner disposition. This is a a change of heart. It is the reality of being a new creature mold the different, free from the power of sin, living soberly and righteous, and that fruit is measured in love. Chapter 13, in joy, he's going to say that in the text, in peace, he says that in chapter 14, in patience and in kindness and in goodness and in faithfulness, they will need that in the future, in gentleness and in self-control, and against such things there is no law. Let's not reduce this to a mere set of beliefs, and we as fundamentalists in the right and appropriate way got off on these tangents in a wrong and inappropriate way of making the fruit of the Spirit, you, you don't do this, and you don't do this, and you don't do this, and you do this, and do this, and do this, and it was simply a matter of behaviors. The truth of the matter is, behaviors stem from the vine and the tree. And a bad tree produces bad behavior, and a good tree produces good behavior. This is the fruits that he's, that he's speaking of. These are the realities that, he, that he's talking about in this context. To reduce this to mere, I don't, I don't go to movies, I don't, I don't dance, stop it. Love and joy and peace and long-suffering soon not have that in the list. I don't know about you. I don't like the long-suffering part of it. Patience. Saying patience with all people, even those who make you mad and drive you crazy and you want to strangle. Patience. Kindness. Because of patience. Goodness. Faithfulness. Moreover, it is required of a steward that a man be found faithful will be no greater thing in heaven than to hear, well done, thou faithful servant. Faith, who produces that faithfulness? Well, me, of course. No. It is abiding in the vine. It's asking for assistance when the most challenging times in life come. It's staying faithful and committed and true. It produces a gentleness and a self-control against such there is, there is no law. When we pray, God changes our hearts and our minds and our desires into conformity to Christ, a union that has been established there that results in obedience 
And obedience produces fruit, and that is the most natural thing for someone who is a part of the vine. There is no such thing as a fruitless Christian. And you say, well, wait a second, Pastor Jim. What about the thief on the cross? He went from one mocking to one saying, remember me in paradise. Who do you suppose produced that fruit? And that change over the matter of hours in this person's life, it was God through Jesus Christ. You understand? It changed him. He produced that the spirit of trust and belief and faithfulness as he cried out to Christ. One commentator noted that in verse 7 in particular that there was a direct connection between how we pray and the things that we're really committed to in our life. I thought that a little convicting. I don't know about you. How, how would you characterize your prayers? What are those things that make make your prayer life a priority? Is it according to the will of God or your wishes? And, and all this is tied into this and expounded on through the teaching of the Old Testament. But know this, when we ask of God aligned with the will of God and the purposes of Christ, the vine in which we are one of the branches, He hears and answers our prayers. Theologically and historically, that's been called the union that we have with Christ. And throughout the New Testament, we were crucified with Christ, according to Pauline theology. We, we died with Him. We were buried with Him. We were raised up into a newness of life because of Jesus Christ or, or with Him. And in that spiritual union that we have in Christ, we are sustained. Colossians chapter 3, we're reminded that we have died and your life is hidden with Christ in God. And when Christ, who is your life, appears, then you will also appear with Him in glory. Paul said in Galatians chapter 2, I've been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. I've died to the self, and now my life is about living in Christ and for Christ. And the life that I now live in the flesh, I live by the faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave Himself for me. This ultimate atoning work matters even how we live our lives. This union is not just a spiritual union that pays eternal dividends. It pays dividends every single day as we abide in Christ and He produces much fruit. And we have to keep that in mind. In fact, did you know that because of your union with Christ, and listen carefully, that union was only by His grace and only through His Son and only by the exercise of the very faith that He gave you. It is God who does everything. You do nothing, nothing, nothing for the saving of your soul. God did it through His Son, Jesus Christ. Because of your union with Christ, though, Paul says in a glorious text in Ephesians chapter 1, blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who has blessed us in Christ, listen to this, with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. You will not lack anything. I've given you everything, but it comes in Christ. So abide in the vine. Allow God to sustain you through that pruning process. 
Know that He will keep you when you will appear with Him in glory someday. But everything that you have in your life is dependent on the blessing and the union that you have in Christ. And that is what He says in verse 7. By this, my Father is glorified. We live for the glory of God alone. By our fruit bearing, we glorify our Father that is in heaven. And we bear much fruit. As you look at that passage of Scripture, that glorification and the bearing of much fruit is an example or a testimony that we are His disciples. Now, I believe that in our testimony, we need to speak to the clarity of the gospel and our, and our sinfulness and our hope in Christ alone. But there are many things that we communicate by the way we live our lives. And Jesus knew that they would be thrust out into a world, and the things that they would teach and the way that they would live would be so contrary to that world that it would bring a persecution and a rejection to them. And he's saying, listen, by, by, by calling on God to getting everything that you need as you ask within the context of the Father's will, He will give you every spiritual blessing is in Christ, and they will know that as the Father has loved me, the Son, I have loved you and your abiding in my, in my love. That union that the Son has with the Father is different than what we have with the Son, but, but it's a likeness there. Our union with Christ is where the capacity to do these things that He mentions, bearing much fruit, praying in the right and appropriate way, is all tied to our relationship to the Father. When we produce that fruit, we verify that we're His disciples, and even more importantly, we bring glory to the Father. One of the criterion for the Bema seat, the seat of judgment that every believer will stand before, not to determine your eternal state, that is done in Jesus Christ, but a reward for how you lived rooted in this union with Christ and this understanding. So the motive for us to show our discipleship, our, our abiding, our, our commitment, our obedience to this Christ and to the Father is to bring glory to the Father. Not to self, but glory to the Father. Whenever we rob God of His glory, we've lost our way. And it betrays the very realities of what Christ is speaking and painting a picture of. It is an indication that God is glorified in the way that they live their life, and the Son is glorified in the way they live their life, and the way they live their life is dependent upon grace, and, and the end of the day, without me, you can do nothing. So, so what does that really mean? Listen again. You are not saved by a profession of faith. You are saved by the work of Jesus Christ. And that salvation is produced by faith, but that faith is a gift of God. He opens your eyes. He allows you to see your sin. He calls you to repentance. He calls you to confess. He calls you to Himself. And in that salvation experience, you reflect the abiding principle 
that he speaks of in this context. As the Father has loved me, I have loved you. You need to live your lives abiding in my love. What does that mean then if you keep my commandments? You will abide in my love. He almost kind of moves from love produces obedience now to obedience increases love. If you love me, you will keep my commandments. This is something he's already addressed in chapter 14. If you love me, verse 15, you will keep my commandments. You say, I can't do that. Well, I'll ask the Father, and He will give you a helper to be with you forever, even the Spirit of truth, whom the world cannot receive because it neither sees Him nor knows Him. You know Him, for He dwells with you and will be in you. If you keep my commandments, if you reflect an obedience to Christ, the, the, the good fruit and, and, and the great, the, the much fruit that, that, that He talks about, it moves beyond some mere role model to this abiding presence and the reality that without Him we can do nothing, but we are bound to keep the commandments of the Father and of the Son. And the only way that we can keep those commandments is by abiding in Him. It's grace. It's still grace. But there's responsibility there. You can grieve the Spirit of God. You can ask for the wrong things. You can say the wrong things. You can do the wrong things, and it grieves the Spirit of God who's been given to you to assist you in your bearing of much fruit. There, there's a responsibility, but listen carefully. No one can remove, remove you from the vine. I and my Father are one. No one will pluck you from my Father's hand. No one will pluck you from mine. We're not talking about salvation now. We're talking about fruit, how we live our lives in obedience. And that, and the end of that, is that bema seat of Christ. So he says to them, these things I have spoken to you. What things? There are at least four precious promises that he makes to these disciples, and he juxtaposes that against verse 6 and against those who, who don't produce any kind of fruit. He juxtaposes that against any work or prayer or thought that they could do in their flesh by reminding them of this haunting passage of Scripture in the Sermon on the Mount, and then going further, making contrary to this, these precious promises to these same disciples. And what were they? He promised them life. I'm the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes into the Father except by me. Your spiritual life and your temporal life are a gift from God, and in your new creation, you are obligated toward obedience, which you're not capable of, but He gives you the Spirit of God, and in that second promise of the Holy Spirit, He enables you to do those things that are required of you in obedience to all of the words of the Savior. This is all grace. He promises them, if indeed they do those things, that they would have peace, a peace that the world does not give them, but a peace that only comes in abiding in the vine. 
And now, in verse 11, he says, these things that I have spoken to you, everything, chapter 13 on and even beyond that, everything that I have spoken to you, all of these things are so that my joy may be in you and your joy may be full. What does he mean by that? Joy is a disposition of the heart. It's this enduring notion, even in the worst of times, that everything's going to be okay. The world does not have that. The world cannot have that. The world does not abide in the vine. But as a new creature, you're different. So you do have that. You're different, so you do love the Father. You're different, so that you do obey His commands. You're different, so you abide in the vine. You're different because He gives you the strength to do what you can't do all by yourself. And because you're different, the world will see that as a testimony to His grace. Otherwise, this turns into a a happiness that is ephemeral at best. It's fleeting. It comes and goes. joy is a deep sense of well-being because we're abiding in the vine. Do you know it? I pray that you know it. I pray that you learn it. I pray that you grasp it. I pray that you live it as a true branch in the vine that produces much fruit. I pray that you understand all of these things in the appropriate context. What is that context? Don't forget that without me, none of this is possible. So you ask yourself, why is it possible? Good question. We're going to tell you right now. We're going to walk you through an exercise. We're going to remind you that it's possible only because of what Christ has done on your behalf. This is a work of grace. I'm a piece of work, but in my calling, when I stand up there and open the book, that's a work of grace. You understand the difference? You could do it in your own strength, sometimes I have flies like a dead balloon, lead balloon, right? I can grieve the Spirit of God or I can say, yeah, I got to say this hard thing because this is what God says. He says this hard thing. I I can't deviate and skip around this. And that's a work of grace. I am the man that I am, not because I've worked hard at it, but because I've learned that I'm dependent upon the vine. Without Him, I can't do anything. So every day, I must go back and be reminded. Every day, I must be reminded that union with Christ. Every day, I must be reminded that I'm to live soberly and righteous in this. Why? Because of what He has accomplished for me. So this ordinance is given to the local church so that we remember. There's one key to obedience, abiding, 
bearing much fruit is first and foremost remembering where you came from, dead in trespasses and sin, and now alive unto God through Jesus Christ. Now you tell me you're not, your salvation isn't glorious. Wow. Wow. We look back. They were looking forward to a terrible chapter in their life, but the truth is still the truth. It is all about Christ. So we come to the table as God's people. It's important that you understand that it's only for God's people. If you've never accepted Christ as your Savior, there's an absence of fruit or no fruit, we'd be concerned for your soul. We would ask that you'd just allow these elements to pass by you. And then we would equally encourage you, maybe stop one of these men up here that serve you, maybe me, maybe the other pastor, and say, I, I'm not sure I, I get this. We'd love to tell you. We'd love to share, share this with you. We're here today not because we're better than everyone else in this world. It's because we're part of the vine, and that is a gift of God through Jesus Christ. We'd love to share that with you. But this is for, for God's people, those who are part of the vine. You don't need to, to leave, but I encourage you to consider those things as we distribute the elements. We will celebrate the securing of our salvation in Christ alone. And that includes living as if we're engrafted into that vine to the degree that we're bearing much fruit. It's all because of Jesus. Alex, would you ask the blessing on the bread? Dear Heavenly Father, thank you for gathering us here today. I pray that you would bless this bread that we're about to partake of. Help us to rightly reflect upon and remember the sacrifice of your son Jesus on the cross for our sins his body beaten and bruised for our transgressions. Please be with us as we examine ourselves. Help us to do so rightly. And be with us as we anticipate Christ's return. In your Son's holy name we pray, amen. For by grace alone you have been saved through faith. It is not your own doing. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. On the same night in which he was betrayed, Jesus took the bread blessed it and broke it and gave it to his disciples and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this as often as you eat it in remembrance of me. Sean, would you ask the blessing on the cup? Dear Father, we just thank you again for today and thank you for this time to come together as a body of believers and remember all that you've done for us. Thank you for your love and that you saw saw us as sinners dead in our trespasses and that you would send your son to redeem us. Thank you for the cross and his blood that was shed on it that paid the debt for our sins. Thank you that it was in Christ alone. There's nothing that we have done. I pray these things in your name. Amen. Jesus loves me this I know. How profound a mystery is that. Jesus tells his disciples, abide in my love. Again, by grace, you have been saved through faith. It's not your own doing. It is the gift of God and not a result of works. No man can boast. But now as his workmanship, new creatures in Christ, created in Christ Jesus for good works, that fruit of which he speaks, God has prepared beforehand that we should walk in them. 
that we might glorify our Father in heaven. In the same manner also when he had supped, Christ took the cup, saying, this cup is the New Testament in my blood. This do ye as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat of this bread and drink of this cup, you remember the Lord's death until he comes. Father, we thank you for such an intimate text being led into an intimate experience the disciples had with their Savior, gleaning much about the sober realities of life, the work of grace, the fruit that is required of those who are part of the vine, access to the Father where we can pray for those things that we can't achieve by ourselves. Teach us to abide in Christ as disciples learn to abide in Christ, that we might bear much fruit. We pray now that you would bless as we take this benevolence offering. We know there's a number who are hurting and going through difficult times. May it be a, a blessing and encouragement collect these funds and distribute them to those who have need, may it be an act of, of grace, an act of producing fruit, and you lead, use it in the, in the lives of those who are recipients. It may be all, all, Lord, for your glory. Remind us of grace. Show us again our Savior. Grant to us the privilege of glorifying our Father which is in heaven each and every day through the union we have with our Savior, for it's in his name we pray. Amen.